a sip instead of yours. If you're looking for a way to get more positive things going into your life, I'd encourage you to check out our friends at Christian Living Magazine. You can find out everything you need at ChristianLivingMag.com. Howdy ho, everybody. We are on to the 14th lesson here into the study of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the very beginning. This is where it all starts, where it all comes from, and how it all gets into playing, and where it goes. So 14th lesson in, we are in chapter 11. We're finishing up chapter 11. So last week, we did the first nine verses of chapter 11, and that was the Tower of Babel. If you haven't listened to that one yet, I would highly suggest you go back and take a listen to the Tower of Babel episode or lesson, whatever it is you want to call these things. There, there's a lot that we don't necessarily discuss or, or we don't know about, per se. I think I'll, inside a, a broad scope of broad scope of lay Christianity, let's just put it that way. You know, yeah, I, I think a lot of people who do a lot of really in-depth study, people who go up and get higher-end degrees or education than this— probably know a little bit more about how this really ties into theology and how deeply intertwined the Tower of Babel incident is with the way that Judaism moved forward and and happened, and then thus how Christianity operates and how people saw the world. But I I think there's even a large section of, of the church that are even better educated that maybe don't grasp how intertwined that is. So it would be good for you to, to go back, grab that lesson, listen to it, watch it on YouTube, whatever you, whatever you do, but, you know, get into it. But today, we're going forward from there. So the Tower of Babel is in nine verses. And then the rest of the, the chapter, chapter 11 here, is genealogy. So we're back to genealogy. And I know that is ever so exciting. It always, it, it's just, it's just, oh, it's it's invigorating whenever we have that opportunity to to dig through lists of names of, of people who who lived. And and that's that's why so many people love the book of numbers is their favorite, and these portions of it are their favorite. And why, if we're real, so many people just skim these sections. So that's why I think it's important that we we do them, we read them, we still continue to go over them, even if we just want to skim it and pass it by and just skip the whole thing. We, we need to not skip the whole thing and, and, and just do it. So let's dig into this. Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 to 32. We're reading out of the English Standard Version. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpashad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpashad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpashad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpashad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ryu. 
And Pele lived, lived after he fathered Ryu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Ryu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarug. And Ryu lived after he fathered Sarug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Okay, again, lots of names, lots of really just exciting, exciting information in here that we're, we're digging. <laughs> and lots of great information here, right? Oh, it's just, it's exciting. So bear with me as we do this one, because these are, these ones, there's actually information here. There's things to glean here. So it's, it's good to do it, but it's not, I mean, it's, it's not necessarily the most exciting section, but that's why we're, we're, we're doing it in one chunk instead of two chunks here. So first of all, we see 10 to 26 Shem's descendants, and then 27 to 32, Terah's descendants. So let's go ahead and, and dig through the first section of this here. Now, we're going to point a couple things out. First of all, we, we have two lines of genealogy. It's, it's really one line that goes through this of genealogy, but it's broken up into two parts. We have Shem's line getting up to Terah, and then Terah's line going, going down, and then Abram. And it's not necessarily another line of genealogy, but it's that beginning story of how Abram and Abraham then goes forward from there. Now, this, this genealogy is a little different. If you remember when we were going through like the Seth lines and the genealogies back earlier in Genesis, it ended like it ended with Terah and he died. They're not doing that here. So this genealogy is a little different. And, and that has led a lot of theologians to differing conclusions about this specific and particular genealogy story branch in here. So there's two main ways and two main directions that theologians actually go with this, this with this genealogy. There is a direct route saying that this is while while only discussing the line that leads to Abram and Abraham, it is a direct lineage line that goes through. Not really skipping anybody, not doing anything like that. And then there's the schemized idea where this really only brings into account the major players, okay, and the, and the major generational heads. Now, generational, again, they'd be skipping some generations and going through this. So the concept here is 
either we can look at this and do the math and line it all up all the way down, or potentially there's some missing segments in there and where we're not exactly sure, but there's missing segments in that. And there's there's a couple reasons for this. Okay, there's a couple reasons why each person does this or each theologian goes whichever direction they go. First of all, those who are in favor of reading this as a more literal and direct line, they, they point to the reality that it's really, really difficult to know when the ellipsis occurs. When, when, when are we gapping this? When is this, you know, it's like going back into the, the beginning of Genesis and, you know, hey, there was creation. Well, when... when if there were millions or billions of years, when 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 was that? When was the was the dock of the day different millions or thousands of years? Like when when is the breakup happen? Right? That's the question is when does this occur? Because we already know from earlier talks that Shem fathered Arpashad. And then now we get told that this happens two years after the flood. So you start going through some of these other things, it's like, okay, we know it's not there, and we know that. Abram was born from Terah. So we also know it's not there. So there's a whole list of people in here. When and where is that? And it's really, really hard to point out when that is. And when it's really hard to point that out, it's incredibly difficult to use a consistent exegesis or how we actually dig through it and study this and, and pull from it. It's really difficult to use a consistent exegesis and say this is not a direct, literal lineage, like this, the line that goes down there through it, especially when genealogies like this are used as, when you see lists like this, they're used as a way to point towards royalty, either kin, kingship or, in this point, the, the father of the faith, where the, where the line and where the faith came from, pointing that it did actually go back to the proper line. And, and this is how, when God said, I was going to do this through your family, then this is where it went, or God was pleased, and this is where it went. So it's really hard to do that. But those who favor this being schemized, meaning that this is just kind of, we're, we're getting the overall scheme of the idea, right? We're just getting the bits and pieces that are, are relevant. Again, why are some of these names relevant for one? But they point out that the events, like when, when they say this is what it likely is, they point out that the events from Genesis chapter nine all the way through the end of chapter 11 and beyond, these would take less than three centuries. If you do the math, it is under 300 years. From flood to full-on population to the Tower of Babel to Abram being there. That's not a lot of time. I mean, you can do a lot, you can grow a lot of people in that much time. But that's not a lot of time. Not only that, but this would mean that all of Abraham's descendants, up to and including Noah, would have actually still been alive at the time of his birth. Noah would have survived to, to if he had been right there, so it's, it's possible, I suppose, to witness the birth of Abram. They all would have been alive. Not to mention Shem and, and Eber would have been around during the time of Jacob. So some of these things, it's one of those, if you're taking it literally, you have to wrap your head around the, the idea and the concept that these other people were alive during other events that you never would have assumed that they would have been alive for. Lifespans drastically dropped off. But 
it wasn't instantaneous. There were generations that were living a lot longer still. And so some of those were living for a very long life. Okay. Whereas if you're taking this as schemized and you're saying, well, you're just grabbing the basic concepts, just realize if you do that, it's really, really difficult to have a and use a consistent exegesis, meaning the way that you're approaching the text and the way you're going through the text to approach it in the same way so that it's a consistent basis that you're going through this. It's really, really hard to do that too. So which one is it? That's why it's highly debated because it's, I, I want to take this as more of a literal direct lineage. As you actually see later on, and we'll discuss this later on, you, you see that the Jewish people did. You see that in the New Testament, they did. So I see absolutely no reason that we're not supposed to interpret this, at least, as a direct lineage. And so I see this as a direct line that goes through. Bible's here. This is what it's saying. I think maybe we need to wrap our heads around something that's a difficult thing to wrap your head around, which is people lived for a very long time. And so some people that we just assumed were long gone by the time of the beginning of the Jewish faith were not so long gone after all. If you want my two cents, that's where my two cents lies. Hey, sip and studiers. As you may know, the family and I have been called into missions and are now officially missionaries to the church in Pakistan. Can't tell you how excited we are for this. It's a great opportunity and we are so blessed for it. But if you've known anybody who's gone into missions, you know, can't do it on our own. We need people to be partnered with us, partnered in prayer and yes, also in financial support. But there's so much more. If you feel God tugging at your heart, letting you know that he has a plan for you to make an impact in the church in Pakistan, we'd love for you to reach out to us and partner with us. And you can do that and more at chogglobal.org slash dsbrown. That's chogglobal.org slash dsbrown, as in Drew and Sonny Brown. Now, back to the study. Verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. So clearly we, we instantly get this new starting point, right? These are the generations of. So we just finished an interruption, right? We got genealogy line, and then we get the Tower of Babel. Okay, now all of a sudden there's the Tower of Babel incident, and we go backwards now. We take a step back and restart up into the genealogy, and the genealogies overlap and work together, okay? So we're going back to the same genealogy again because you have the Tower of Babel that discusses the changing of the table of nations, right? We have this, this listing out of this is where the people groups come from. This is how you know them, yada, yada, yada. So Moses tells the story. This is where all of the people come from. Now, you might be wondering how all these people started from a small family and then branched out. And there's different cultures. There's different languages. There's all these different things. And so this is how that happened. We have the Tower of Babel incident. And people, instead of continuing to spread out, they group back in together, disobey God, and then, bam, it goes out. So once we do that, now let's get back into the genealogy and let's go through the line again. But let's continue it on through the faith, right? God's leading up to his chosen people, which starts with Abram. 
and starts going down the line again and points towards Abram. And so this is where this is. And this is that starting and getting back into the line. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpashad two years after the flood. So two years after the flood is when he fathered Arpashad. Great. So we had that brief interruption that goes into this. This genealogy is slightly different than the other genealogies that we've done earlier on throughout the Sethite line. And again, it's because there's, there's not the introduction of, and he died. Now, the omission of, and he died, and the way that this is slightly different, it, it points towards the future, meaning that it's represented by birth and the covenant of life. Things are going forth forward. Also, we want to notice, kind of brought this up a little earlier, but we want to notice the, the logarithmic decline of the lifespans after the flood. And that's an actual math thing. You can watch it go here and then it just dips, okay? And it dips down. Now, it's, it's very close to an actual logarithmic algorithm that you can plug in and watch the graph go, which is an indication that, yeah, something actually happened at the flood and the lifespans completely shifted and completely changed. And we see that through the generations that inside of the genetic codes, it just shifted people started to live a lot shorter lives. Shem being 100 years old indicates that he was likely not the oldest son of Noah. We had brought that up when we were talking about the sons of Noah. Him being 100 years old here indicates he's, he's probably not the oldest one. And Arpashad is two years. Uh, this gives a link back to the flood, ensuring that the readers and hearers would know that this lineage is still all the way back. And we're not discussing another another group, another family line or anything like that. This is that line that goes forward, okay? All right, 11 to 16. So we do a, a big chunk in this because there's there's only so much that's inside of each one of these. 11 to 16. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpashad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpashad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpashad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. You guessed it. And when Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. Now, we, we stop here at Peleg because Peleg is kind of a, a turning point, right? This is a, a, a situation where things really change gears. And I say that because Peleg, if you go back, Peleg was where there's the land divided. This is where the generations divided and went through. Now, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of this, has this a little different than the Masoretic text, okay, than the, the traditional Hebrew version of the text. They differ here in verse 12. And I think this is an important point to make up and bring up, not make up, but to bring up at this point, because certain New Testament authors who are informed by the current stance of the day after the intertestamental period and going into the New Testament, so the deep theological thoughts, they're, they're heavily influenced by the Septuagint, the, the Greek translations of the writings. And they're seeing this as, as accurate, if not slightly more accurate, and they teach from that. And so when they're quoting it, they pull oftentimes from the Septuagint rather than the Masoretic texts. This differs here, and the difference between the Masoretic text, the Hebrew, and the Greek, the Septuagint, is identified 
in Luke, Luke chapter 3, verses 35 to 36. And Luke actually matches the Septuagint here. The son of Surag, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, spelled with an I in here, C-A-I-N-A-N, the son of Arpashad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech. Okay, so there's an addition in here. And this is, again, from the Septuagint. Now, this is what the Septuagint reads like. And so this is potentially how we should actually read this section right here. When Arphashad had lived 35 years, so same as here, he fathered Canaan. And after he became the father of Canaan, Arbashad lived 430 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Canaan had lived 34 years, he became the father of Shelah. And after he fathered Shelah, Canaan lived 330 years and had other sons and daughters, and then so on. Okay. So we have another name in here. Why the difference? Why is this here? Why, why does it matter? Well, again, the genealogies matter and line up and how this stuff works. But at the end of the day, especially from a Western culture standpoint, we don't see this as a big thing anyway, other than potentially turning around and saying, well, there's an error in the text. We, we, have, to, we have to say that that's a problem. Scribe issues happened all the time. There were scribal errors in, I mean, it was just a normal thing. Everybody did this by hand. They had to look at the text. They had to write it, by, write it down and go through there. Now, it was much more common for a scribe to leave something out because the whole point of them doing it is copying it letter for letter, word for word, right? And it was much more common for scribes to accidentally leave something out and have somebody who's reviewing it to skim it and just say, yeah, that looks right and have that move on. Then it was to add something into it because if something, if you've read it a hundred times and you skim through something, if there's something added, that's much more obvious than a name in a giant list of names that you miss. And so what is believed to have happened here is we had scribes that missed it and then the copies just kept going copy after copy. <laughs> and so you lost that. And it actually was brought back in because whoever brought in the Septuagint said this doesn't match up with the history and this older text and older translations that we have. And so we we brought that back in. And so it is believed that the Septuagint, the Greek translation, holds a tighter grasp on that. And so just so we know, likely there is another name that is supposed to be in here, and it is Canaan. Not the Canaan you're thinking of from earlier, but this is a different Canaan. Okay, continue on. 18 to 26. Now, I know you're saying you didn't do 17. And Iber lived and fathered Peleg. 430 years, and he had other sons and daughters. You're right. That was supposed to be 11 through 17, not 16. But anyway, 18 to 26. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ryu. Peleg lived after he fathered Ryu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ryu had lived 32 years, he fathered Surug. And Ryu lived after he fathered Surug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Surug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Surug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years, considerably shorter, and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, notice the 
dis- the drastic reduction in lifespan here. We're, we're not going to point out a whole lot in this the remainder of this section because there's just not a lot here. Okay, it's just, it's a list of names. It is an important list of names that leads to the beginning of the Jewish faith with Abram. But as far as what we're discussing, it's a list of names. Okay, so there's not a lot that we're gleaning from this, right, in this exact section. But notice that drastic reduction in lifespan again here, starting with Peleg. So the antediluvian, so meaning before the flood, the the expectancy was around 900 plus years. People were living over over 900 years. That's a long, long lifespan. Shem and Eber, around 450 years. It's half. Peleg is less than 250. And Nahor might be an outlier, but the beginning of that is less than 150 years. Okay, so the lifespan is dropping drastically until we get down into the, you know, if if they had medical care, if they were well off, they had proper medical care, they could do hygiene and things like that. They were living 70 years around the time of Jesus. Most people were living 30 or 40 years. That was considered a good long lifespan for somebody who was a working class. But realistically, if they had health care, it wasn't uncommon for people to live 60, 70, sometimes even 80 years. So... Terah's descendants. Let's look at 27 to 32. We're just going to do this giant chunk. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Now, again, these are the generations. We start a new section. Okay, you had the lineage that ran through, and there's the lineage. Now we're going to talk a different section. We're doing a different part of the story, the different part of the narrative here, okay? So grabs that. These are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Interesting distinction to point out there until you get to 28. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, the, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. Notice that's spelled different. But when they came to Haran, not his son Haran, but the area, the, the town of Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So let's just go ahead and kind of streamline the information. I tried to emphasize some points just with vocal inflection. So I'm hoping you're catching some of that, that it's not just a a dry read. But when we dry read this, it can be very easy to get lost and kind of go backwards and what what is being said? What's happening here? So let's, let's just kind of, let's just put this in a little easier way to understand. Terah has three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran fathered Lot. Okay, the family is living in Ur. This is southern Iraq. Haran dies prematurely, and it appears to have scared the family. What the incident is, how it happens, we don't know. But it seems to have put a, the, a fire under the family to make a move. To It's not a safe place for us right now. We probably should uh, uh, get out of town. You know, get out of Dodge. Abram? Marries Sarai, who's barren. 
was already known, apparently. She was barren and childless. And they more or less adopt Lot, their nephew. Nahor married his niece. Kind of weird. Wasn't law against that at that point, right? He married his niece, the daughter of Haran, Milka. Okay, that kind of helped kind of sum that up. And they were, they left the land of Ur of the Chaldeans and went along their way. Now, if we move forward one more verse after 32, we get into 12.1. Chapter 12, verse 1, which, by the way, let's, let's just go ahead and do this. Chapter 12, verse 1 says this. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. We'll talk here in just a little bit about other places where this ties in and why this is a uh, why I can say this. But with the evidence that we have, it would appear that 12.1, when, when God gives Abram a vision, when he talks to him and says, it's time for you to leave, it's time for you to go, it's not in Haran. He wasn't there yet. He wasn't there yet. The Jewish tradition was he wasn't there yet. This again, 12.1 was a step backwards. So tells the line, tells the story. This is what happens all the way through Terah. Now let's back up just a little ways and go back to Abram and then go forward again. Okay, so this really implies that God called Abram prior to leaving Ur of Chaldean. Okay, so he was in Ur with his family and the family decided, this was a family decision. We're all gonna go. And this is a bad situation. Terah's sitting here, you know, like a good son. He's honoring his father, right? Dad, this is what's going on. This is what all is happening. I really, I had a vision from, at that point, probably you know, might've been a God, but I got a vision from God or a God and we're, I'm supposed to leave. And dad says, I've already lost a son. I'm not gonna lose another son. Let's gather up, you know, let's, you guys, let's go. Let's get out of here. Take Lot, let's, let's go. So again, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, and his grandson, and Sarai, because apparently Nahor wasn't going to come, and they they left, and they went. So he wasn't going to leave his dad. Okay, so it was a family decision to start heading towards Canaan. One of the interesting things about this, Canaan, if you, if you look at a map, southern Iraq, Canaan, it's almost west, right? right? It's basically west. But they go northwest. And it's probably because that's the roadway or they were trying to avoid somebody. Or one of the theories here is Terah might have actually been from Haran and he wanted to go back home for a little bit. And so they kind of made that, that trek up and over. Haran is about 550 miles from Ur, from southern Iraq, that area. And it's basically at the border of Turkey and Syria, okay? It's north of Canaan. And they stop and they settle there. This is 550 miles. By foot, depending on how they do everything, they can get, you know, if they, if they work hard, they can get 15 to 20 miles per day. This was over a month. This was a month plus of travel. And they stopped and they stayed there in Haran and, and he died. Now, after Terah died, According to the narrative, some people say, no, no, he left before he died. But it's really hard to say because it, the text basically comes right out and says he stayed there until he died. So after Terah died, Abram, Sarai, and Lot continued their journey following God's call, which again, we see in chapter 12. 
All right, so things we want to point out here, not necessarily things that we're taking away from this, but things that we want to point out about the text that, that we can glean from and how we can make some of the deductions, things that if you just read it straight through, you're going to miss because it's you're just reading names, right? If you start reading names, you're going to miss a lot of this stuff. We know Tara and thus his family, they were pagan. They were pagan and they worshiped different gods. Now, we can point that out because of Joshua 24.2. Joshua 24.2 says... And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Okay, so we know that they were pagan. They were paganistic. Sarai in Hebrew means princess. Well, that's pretty nice. Hey, princess, I like it. It's great. Yeah, the Akkadian, Zeratu, which is likely what it's based off of, means queen. Again, a great name. Wonderful. Sharatu was the wife of the Babylonian moon god, Sine, who was worshipped in Haran. And by the way, where was the center of the cult of Sine? Oh, well, it was in Ur. It was in Ur. <laughs> so there's a good indication here that not only was Terra and his family pagans, were they pagans, but they were worshipers of the Babylonian moon god, Sine. Milka means queen, but it's likely based on the Akkadian Milkatu, which is the title of the Babylonian goddess Ishtar, who happens to be, you might have guessed it, the daughter of Sine, the Babylonian moon god. Okay, so there's lots of linkings and lots of indications here that the family actually worshipped some of the Babylonian gods, you know, lowercase g, plural, right? But they were worshippers of the Babylonian gods and primarily the moon god. Interesting. Now, as stated before, God spoke to Abram prior to being in Haran. This is confirmed by Stephen in Acts 7, chapter 7, verse 2. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abram, or Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. This tells us that the Jewish acceptance, the Jewish idea of this and the understanding was that happened prior to getting to Haran. So this stepping was a stepping backwards in time and God likely called to Abram when they were still in Ur. And instead of just leaving on his own and taking his wife and going on their merry way and following God in his call, he told his father about it. And his father said, no, I'm going to go with you. And they all go and then sidetracked and he honors his father and takes care of his father until his father dies. Now, again, if you're a little bit of a history buff, you might be reading this and saying, man, I can't even, I can't even handle this. The Chaldeans weren't in that region at this point in time. And I would tell you, you're absolutely correct. You're, you're right. You're right. Your, your history is not wrong. You're not wrong in your thoughts. And so how does this play and how does this work? Well, very simply, when editors go through and do things, just like we have our modern, more modern translations, which try to make it a little bit easier to read or put things in words and in concepts that people would understand of the day. They, they make it relative to the day. That happened sometimes. Not all, we didn't see it happen all of the places, which is kind of that interesting thing. But the Old Testament, that actually happens quite a bit, quite a bit, where 
names and places and whatnot will actually be updated to current understandings. So later in time, right? So so after it was already written and they're going through it, they'll update it so that that stays relevant. So people know where they're talking about. Okay, this is where that was happening. And so this is an indication that this was a later update by changing the name, not updating where it was at, but updating the names the titles of it so that the people would have an understanding of what was going on. Because yes, Chaldeans, it's, it's an evidence of, they call it the modernization from later editing. That's, that's what that's referred to as, is modernization. They're modernizing the language of the regions, like this is who was there, so that people would understand what this is. And, and this is evidence of that because the Chaldeans entered the southern Mesopotamian region the first millennia BC. So about a thousand years or so before Jesus. This was a ways before that. Okay. This was a ways before that, at least a thousand years before that. And they weren't ruling the area. They weren't the ruling group until the seventh or sixth century BC. So this was probably close to 1500 years. Even if you go the direct lineage line, this was close to 1500 years, 15, 1600 years prior to the Chaldeans being the major party in the area. So it's a, it's a great indication of modernization, just to let people know this is that region where it was coming from. Now, Terah took, again, point that out. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot. This wasn't Abram saying, I got a vision, I'm going, and Terah came along. Terah took, because in that culture, even back then, right, we, we understand this is the cultures, cultures of the people groups, the head of the household and the head of the family line would then make that decision. Hey, here we go. And they would go. So the information was brought and he declared, we're all going. But Nahor didn't. Okay. So at least we're not told directly right here that Nahor does. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran. Again, they basically adopted him. And Sarai, his daughter-in-law, he takes them and they go. And they're heading out from Ur of the Chaldeans into the land of Canaan or towards to go into the land of Canaan. But they came to Haran, which again is kind of, if you look at a map, it's definitely not as a crow flies, but this is the direction that they go and they settle there and they settle there until Terah dies at the age of 205. All right, what can we take away from this? So even if the timeline is literal and direct, which I tend to take it at least more so as, right? I tend to take this as more so a, a direct lineage and a direct line that, that comes through and goes out for that. And why do I do that? Because it, it just it's easier to run a keep doing the proper exegesis throughout the text and quantify it that way and to work through it that way. So I take this as at least a little bit more of a literal this is the lineage line that breaks down going towards Abram. So even if that timeline is literal and direct, it took less than 200 years, less than 200 years after Babel for paganism to become a major thing and for Abraham's family to be very deep into it. Less than 200 years. Even after receiving God's call, Abram didn't give up his family. And this doesn't mean that he embraced his family's beliefs. 
because Abraham was a man of faith and followed God and went and did these, did that, right? He follows God. So he was a man of faith. So it doesn't mean that he just fully embraced what his family was doing, but he didn't give up on them either. And that's something we see all too often today is people, well, uh, you know, I, this again, uh, they're, they're not bringing anything into my life. It's hard to be around them. So I'm just going to write them off. Abraham didn't write off his family. In fact, he told his dad what was going on. And his dad basically said, took charge and said, let's go. I'm going to take you. Let's go. And he made way for this to happen. So all too often, people feel trapped and overwhelmed by generational sin. And I'm bringing generational sin into this because it it just makes sense. Like his dad was worshiping pagans. They were pagans and they were worshiping the the moon god, the Babylonian moon gods. So chances are it's not the first. So all too often people feel trapped by by situations in their family and they feel overwhelmed and they, they consider this a generational sin. My, my grandparents did this, or even a generational curse. My grandparents did this, so my parents did this. So I am going to have to be like that, and I'm going to have to do it too, but I don't want to. Some things we see and call generational sin or even generational curses are simply bad choices. We don't have to just fall into that. That's not necessarily something that we have to accept. Yeah, it's hard to, to break that because that's how you're raised, but... Just because that's in the family line doesn't mean that it's, that's what it is. And just recognize and just know, God wants to work through your life and into your family and into those people that are around you that are difficult that you're trying to completely just write off because you can't take it. Most of the time, that doesn't mean giving up on them. Unless God gives you the directive to leave them and to just cut that tie. They might be part of who you are meant to minister to. Oh my God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. Even when we get into these times, and especially when we get into these times where it's it's maybe not the most exciting. It's it's a little more difficult to see why is this even here? Because our culture, we don't we don't pay much attention to these things. So God, thank you for preserving this and for giving us things that we can glean from it. Thank you for having that line that goes through and showing us that even when all of humanity was going against you, that you still found people and that you chose people and that you made a way back to you and that you provided a way for reconciliation, that you provided a way for Jesus, your son to come, for forgiveness to happen and for full-on reconciliation to happen. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that comes upon us that we can live that life and embrace that and work with you in our lives and through our lives. God, I just ask that you you empower us to do what it is that you're calling us to do. You empower us and, and work through us and encourage us to work with the people that you're calling us to work with and to minister to, even and especially when it's people that maybe we don't necessarily want to. God, I just... Thank you again for today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I thank you guys so much for being here. Hope you guys had a great time and learned a little something out of this. And we'll catch you guys next time. God bless. Bye-bye.